Let's get into the wonderful Word of God. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to finish the chapter today. <laughs> That's cool. I love you guys. That's cool. There's lots more chapters to come. Don't worry. There's 11 more chapters. Has it been a year? It hasn't been a year. No, it hasn't been a year. When did we start this thing? In January, didn't we? When did we? October? Wow, it's been, it has been a while. <laughs> well, we're moving on. Chapter 3 next week, Lord willing. Okay, so let's read the first, or the last, rather, three verses of Hebrews chapter 2. We'll start in verse 16. It says, For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these wonderful truths that are before us, that you are able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And we find ourselves today in that camp. We find ourselves people who are tempted more than we want to be, people who are in a danger of being seduced by wickedness and by the world around us and all the things that are contrary. But you, we thank you, Lord, that you are a Savior, that you are victorious, and that you are able you're able to preserve us. You're able to rescue us. You're able to help us in the moment of need, in the time of temptation. And so, Lord, we ask that after this Bible study today, our lives would be different. We ask the Holy Spirit, you would come and increase faith in this place. That we would really believe that in the difficult moments of temptation, we have a near and present help in the person of Christ Jesus. We thank you that your word reveals these things to us. I praise you, Jesus, that you have birthed a church here that loves your word. And we love your word because in it we discover you and more of your heart and more of your person and your will and your plans. And we find in your word that, Jesus, you are altogether lovely, that you are beautiful, that you are wonderful, that you are all that we have been looking for and all that we will ever need. And we thank you that, Jesus, you are the chief shepherd, the senior pastor over this church. And we submit ourselves together now humbly under your headship and ask that you would knit our hearts together in unity, give us common vision and goal and purpose as a church. We ask that love would increase and abound, that grace toward one another would abound, that you would cause this church to reflect more and more of you and your glory, your mercy, your grace, your love, and your power. Help me now, Lord, please, to communicate these holy truths in a way that glorifies you. We ask you together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are now this week finishing our four-week series on the cross. Of course, the first week was speaking about the fact that through the cross, Jesus has recaptured our lost destiny. After that, the fact that through the cross, Jesus has recovered our lost unity with God and with one another. And then also through the cross last week, we learned that Jesus has released us from satanic bondage. And now we see that he restores us 
in times of failure. Because of the cross, we can count on Jesus to restore us in our numerous, sometimes all too numerous, times of failure. Let's look at verse 16 again. It says, For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Angels are brought up here again. You'll remember in chapter 1 that angels were a big topic in chapter 1. It came up there, the topic of angels, in chapter 1, in order that the author might demonstrate to us the superiority of Jesus Christ over angels. There was a danger in that culture, and there's a danger in our culture, of angels being overly esteemed, of becoming objects of affection and adoration, and even sort of mediators between God and man. But we're told that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, amen? And that he is superior to all the angels, that they exist to serve him, and that indeed he created them. And he is now exalted, seated at the right hand of majesty on high, over the angels. And then the angels came up again earlier in chapter 2 in verse 5. In verse 5 was speaking about the fact that God has a special relationship and plan for humanity over and above his plan for angels. It says in verse 5 of chapter 2, for God did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. And we studied that at length that the original destiny of man is that we would be co-regents with Christ, that we would co-rule with Christ. We were to have dominion over creation. We were to have a special oversight stewardship position in this world, but we lost that destiny at the fall of man. It is restored through the cross and ultimately made manifest at the second coming of Jesus Christ as he establishes his kingdom in Jerusalem and as we are faithful to him in this lifetime with the gifts, talents, resources, opportunities, and sphere of influence he gives us, we will be entrusted with more oversight in his kingdom when it is manifest here on earth during his millennial reign from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Amen? Amen? And that's a privilege given to humanity, not necessarily given to angels during that time. Now angels are mentioned here again in verse 16. And they're mentioned in order to highlight how unique and wonderful God's relationship and plan is for man, again, over and above angels. It says, for assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Now, this is speaking, of course, salvifically or with regards to salvation. God as a Savior, it says here, he does not give that kind of help to angels. Did you ever think about that fact? Because there are fallen angels, just like there's a fallen humanity. Not all of the angels are fallen, but a proportion of them are, for, are fallen. We now call them demons. God gives them no chance for repentance. He does not offer his son upon the cross for angels. In fact, he only does that for humanity, not for any other created being. He offers his son for us and not for angels. Now, you might take exception with that. You might think that's not fair or say, well, God, why didn't you offer to save the angels? I don't know. But I don't argue with God, you see. I just kind of let him, I just figure he's the all-wise God and he has a reason for that. But salvation is not offered to angels. It is offered to you and I. Now, you and I are included in a way by extrapolation in that phrase, descendant of Abraham. It means in the context, the Jewish race, the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, the descendant of Abraham. But it's not limiting salvation to the Jews. Remember, 
in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham that he would be a blessing to all the nations. And the promised Messiah would be the savior of the whole world, though he was a Jewish Messiah. So this, this phrase, that God gives helps to the descendant of Abraham, in context is talking about the Jewish people, but it's not by nature then limiting salvation to only the Jews. Salvation is for every tongue, tribe, and nation. It's simply said the descendant of Abraham because the book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrews. So he's talking to them, so he's speaking directly to them. The idea of this verse is that God has a special desire and plan to save humanity from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. Now, does anybody here have a King James Bible? Don't be shy. I'm not going to mess with you. Okay, cool. Yeah, okay, okay, cool. The four of you noticed. I'm cool with King James. Please do not be offended. The four of you notice that your King James Bible reads differently in this verse, doesn't it? It reads differently in verse 16. It says this. If it's an old King James, not new King James. Oh, King James. Oh, King James says this in verse 16. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. So there's a difference in reading. Besides the unique language from the 1600s, the important difference here are these phrases. He took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. He took not on him the nature of angels, but the seed of Abraham. Now, the New American Standard, which is what I teach from, reads as I read it to you, um, as do all the other modern translations, New Living Translation, NIV, New King James, CEV, all those, uh, seem to say very simply that Jesus does not offer salvific help to angels, but to people, as I just explained to you from the NASB. And that fits the context. That fits the context of this chapter of the book of Hebrews. The King James Version seems to say something entirely different. It's not talking about the simple fact of help, but it's speaking about Jesus taking on the nature of humanity. That when he came... As a full revelation of God, he took on the nature of humanity as opposed to some angelic form, which would be analogous to Mount Sinai. When he appeared at Mount Sinai, it was more like an angelic form. It was spiritual and, and powerful and frightening, and more like that angelic form. So God could have done that, but when Christ came, he came in the form of man, not in angels, and that's what the King James Version is saying there. The difference in, the difference in translation comes from one single word in the Greek, epilambano, which simply means to take hold of. So it may mean that Christ takes hold of us in order to help us, as a New American Standard and NIV and New King James read, or that he took hold of human nature in the incarnation, as the King James Version, Version reads. That also fits the context. The King James Version is a valid translation of the Greek word, and it also fits the context. This is one of those situations in the Bible where a Greek word or phrase can be translated in several different ways. A lot of Greek words are that way. And then what determines the way that the translators would translate it is the context. 
The context, content plus context equals meaning in the Bible. So many Greek words can be translated different ways. What determines the way that it's translated is the context. But what's difficult about this verse is that both those contexts are there. The context of the incarnation and the fact that he simply helps those who are in need, namely humanity. We have English words that um, the meaning has to be determined by context, don't we? It could have different meanings, like for example, Gosh, I don't have a date. Date. Okay, this is an important one. Because if you say to somebody, oh, awesome, we have a date. There had better be a very clear context as to what you mean. Does it mean that there's an appointment on the calendar for you to do some business? Or does it mean that you have a date? What it means is only determined by the context. It's the same exact word, right? You see what I'm saying? So that's the situation that we have here. But here's what's cool. Whether you have the King James translation or one of the modern translations, the main point and the end result are the same, right? The main point and the end result are the same, that God intends to help people who are affected by the penalty power, and presence of sin, and that he doesn't help angels who have that same problem. And the incarnation is certainly a major part of God helping those affected by the power, penalty, and presence of sin. So the truth of the passage is unchanged by either translation. So let's give a round of applause for the King James people for holding it down. Yes, go to it. <laughs> so what we want to take away from verse 16 and what we should never stop rejoicing in is that God is willing to help undeserving rebels. There's the crux of it. Only in humanity. He didn't do it for angels, though they rebelled. We begin to see that humanity is unique and that humanity is special to God. We, we don't want to go too far with that, lest we become humanistic in our worldview or in our theology. But there's no denying that God has a unique, special heart and plan for humanity as represented in this verse. Now, verse 17. Verse 17 says, Therefore, he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. When it says he here, it's referring to Jesus. When it says he had to be made like his brethren, brethren here specifically in context once again is Jews. The Jews are called the brethren of Christ in a unique way because when Jesus came, he was Jewish. Okay, you can't escape that fact. We are also being grafted into the promises and the covenants that God made with Israel, the brethren of Christ, but the Jews in a unique way. And so that's what it's referring to here. But again, the idea follows with all of humanity. So he, Jesus, had to be made like humanity. Now, when it says to be made like, it's talking about the incarnation and all that it entails. In fact, it says he had to be made like his brethren in all things. So Jesus in his humanity had all the experiences and all the realities of being human except for one, sin. He had all the experiences and all the realities that come with humanity except for sin, which is the miracle part. 
that he was fully God and fully man, but holy without sin. That is the orthodox, biblical, historical Christian faith. And a lot of heresies come when we don't nail that. When, when you deny the full humanity of Christ, or you deny the full deity of Christ, or you believe that he was not always God, but he was adopted by God and took on deity at a certain time. Many people would say the baptism. There's all these heresies that come forth if we don't understand that he is fully man and fully God, and he experiences everything that humanity does except for sin. And Hebrews is very clear about that. If you just want to look at chapter 4 real quick, verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Chapter 7 speaks of the innocence of Christ. If you look there in verse 26, It says in 7.26, For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So the clear biblical doctrine is that though Jesus Christ took on humanity, he was without sin. And so when he took on humanity, what was absent was original sin. He did not inherit or obtain a sin nature. Other than that, his humanity was complete just as ours is. There was a complete and real likeness to humanity, a likeness which was closest just where the traces of the curse of sin are most apparent to humanity. That is to say, Jesus experienced the results of sin in the world but himself being without original sin or subsequent sin. He experienced poverty, the result of sin in the world. He experienced temptation. He experienced violence. He experienced unjust death and ostracization. And he experienced all these things that are the results of the sin in the world that are common experiences to humanity, but he himself was without sin. But he knows what it's like to live under the curse of sin and the burden of sin and the heartbreaking results of sin. Did not our Lord weep over Jerusalem? Did not our Lord weep at the grave of Lazarus? He knows and understands the wages of sin, but he is without sin himself. That is a miracle of the incarnation. Now it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God. Before we get to the merciful and faithful part, which is a really fun part, let's deal with the fact that Jesus is called in the book of Hebrews our high priest. Obviously now in the Bible, the idea of the high priest comes from the worship life of Israel in the Old Testament. You've got to eliminate any other idea of high priest. You've got to eliminate that. anything that's pagan or, or any other religion or whatever. Just get it out of your mind. It, it all comes from the Old Testament worship structure as ordained by God and experienced by Israel. Now, there were 12 tribes in Israel, as you know, 
and there was only one tribe from which priests could come, and that was the tribe of Levi. And within the tribe of Levi, there was a family of Aaron. The family of Aaron became the priests, the Levitical priests. The tribe of Levi, they were all able to serve in the tabernacle and in the temple and in the worship life of Israel. But the family of Aaron from the tribe of Levi was the priestly line. There were many priests in the Old Testament worship structure, but there was only one high priest at a time. And he occupied the highest and most important role in Jewish worship life. The highest and most important role. Predominantly what the priests did, what they were concerned with, was reconciliation and mediation. The priests were concerned with reconciliation and mediation. They were working on reconciling man to God through atoning sacrifices. And if you read the Old Testament, we're in the one-year Bible. If you're reading the Old Testament, you see that it is very bloody and full of sacrifices and all sorts of different sacrifices. And all of these existed so that man might be reconciled to God. And it was a priest's job to perform all these various sacrifices, to know the ins and outs of them, and to facilitate the sacrificial system on behalf of Israel, that Israel might experience God and not be alienated because of their sins. So they did work of reconciliation and then also work of mediation, that is intervening. They stood between Israel and God. They represented Israel to God and they represented God to Israel. And they intervened, they interceded, they pleaded the case of a guilty nation before a holy God and they would decree the truths of a holy God and the forgiveness of that God before the nation. So reconciliation and mediation. And for them to mediate, they had to be a representative of the people. They had to be a representative of Israel. That's why only an Israelite could be a priest because to represent Israel, you had to be an Israelite. And that part of representation is a big heart of the priesthood. The Hebrew word for priest is Cohen. You'll meet people nowadays who are Jewish that have the last name Cohen. Anybody here? Is there anybody here? Gosh, that would have been so cool. You have the last name Cohen? No, you don't. I just did your wedding, you fibber. Anybody know somebody? Okay, let's go with that. Anybody know somebody with the last name Cohen? Okay, many of us. Very cool. They are from the priestly line. Their last name, or at least they might be, their last name means priest in Hebrew, even today. Now, the root for that word has this idea. One who stands up for another. Isn't that cool? One who stands up for another and mediates his cause. So that's what the priest did. They stood up for Israel and the law of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, and by sacrifice themselves drew near and enabled Israel to draw near that they might mediate between a holy God and a fallen man. One who stands up for another and mediates his cause. Now, this entire priesthood and worship structure in the Old Testament was all a foreshadow of the person of Jesus Christ. When you begin to read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus, it comes to life as it may never have for before for you. 
When you begin to see all those sacrifices as prefiguring, foreshadowing, pointing forward to, speaking of, lifting back the veil on the person of Jesus Christ before the incarnation, it helps to make sense of those things. So the worship structure, the sacrifices, and the priesthood were all foreshadows, all pointing to Jesus Christ. So Jesus then, in the incarnation, becomes the reconciler. He picks up that priestly work of reconciliation. He himself becoming the sacrifice that reconciles. No more having to make sacrifices over and over again of animals that could never fully remove our sins, Hebrews 9 and 10 say. He offers himself, the priest offering himself as a sacrifice once and for all that man might be reconciled once and for all to God and no more sacrifices are needed. So Jesus becomes a reconciler and he becomes the mediator, the one who stands in the gap. Do you remember the lament of Job during one of his difficult times? And he, he, he knew that his issue, so to speak, was with God. He knew that somehow what was happening with him was connected with God. You know that it came through the permission of God. But he said, what am I going to do about this? God is not like me. I can't just go to God and reason with him directly. And there's no one to be an umpire between us, he said. There's no one to put his hand on God and his hand on me and act as an umpire. Jesus Christ is the umpire, the mediator, the one who works reconciliation between fallen man and a holy God. He's got his hand on the Godhead, so to speak, for he is God, and his hand on humanity, for he was draped in humanity, and so he becomes the mediator and the intercessor. He ever lives to make intercession for us, the New Testament says. Now, he represents fallen man before God, to be a representative of man, he had to become man. In the same way that for the high priest to represent Israel, they had to come from Israel. For him to represent man, he had to become man. Priests can only be taken from other members of the race. It says that in chapter 5, since you're close to there. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. It says... For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. So we see that the very structure of the priesthood is ordained by God, looked forward to and necessitated the incarnation of Jesus Christ who would pick up the work of reconciliation and mediation. So in his humanity, he qualifies and is able to fulfill the position of high priest who reconciles and mediates. So reading the verse again, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become, right? The incarnation was necessary that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Now, let's look at the fact that he is merciful. Can anybody say amen? He is merciful. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 also points to it. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. In verse 16, 
Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in the time of need. Mercy and grace. It says here that Jesus is a merciful high priest. Now, what does that word mercy mean exactly? I'm sure we have a lot of different ideas, but if you look it up, you can nail it down. The idea of that word merciful is the feeling of pity for the wretched and their wretchedness. The feeling of pity for the wretched, read you, read I, the feeling of pity for the wretched and their wretchedness. Furthermore, the feeling of sympathy with the misery of another that leads one to act on his or her behalf to relieve that misery. So the feeling of sympathy with the misery of another, but it leads to action. The, the idea involves thought, feeling, but also action. It's not mercy in the biblical sense unless there is action. True compassion always takes action. True compassion always takes action. And Jesus is truly compassionate. He realizes and sympathizes with and has pity on our wretchedness and us as wretches. So the idea is a compassionate heart leading to acts of mercy the purpose of which are to relieve the suffering and misery of the object of that compassion. And humanity is the object of that compassion. You and I become the object of God's compassion. He is a compassionate God. His compassion is altogether perfect. We know nothing of it in and of ourselves. And he doesn't extend it to the angels. But for you and I, he has unlimited compassion. As it says in verse 16, he offers help to us. I love what Isaiah 30 verse 18 says. It says, therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. His very nature is mercy and compassion. He longs to be gracious to you. He waits on high to have compassion. And God's heart of compassion is expressed most fully in the person of Christ. God's heart of compassion is best understood through the cross of Jesus Christ. It is in the cross that the waiting of God to extend mercy and compassion to humanity and the longing of humanity to receive that and to be saved out of their wretchedness come together. The compassion and the mercy and the wretchedness of humanity come together in the cross of Jesus Christ. And having become a man, he is our merciful, merciful high priest. And because he's merciful and because of the cross, we can draw near to him and receive grace in the time of need. We, we must understand here the difference between justice, mercy, and grace. Very elementary, but it's good for us to remind ourselves. Justice is getting what you deserve. Justice is getting what you deserve. You broke the law and it's uh, uh, a month in jail for what, whatever it was that you did. You broke the law, a month in jail is a general sentence. You go before the judge and he says, I sentence you to a month in jail. That's justice. We all rejoice in justice all the time and we get bummed out when justice isn't met and when justice is perverted. So justice, you get a month in jail. Mercy 
is not getting what you deserve. If justice is getting what you deserve, mercy is not getting what you deserve. You go before the judge, you did that crime, it deserves a month, and the judge, said, the judge says, you know what? I'm just gonna give you a week in jail. Oh, wow, the judge was merciful to me. I got, that, that was awesome. So justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, but grace. There is the concept. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is you committed the same crime. Justice would dictate that you do the time one month. Mercy would let you do less time. But grace says, you know what? You don't have to do any time. And what I'm going to do to you is an all-expense-paid vacation to Jamaica on the beach, everything included, for two weeks with you and all your friends. That is grace. That is what has been extended to humanity through the person of Christ Jesus and the work of the cross. Justice is what we deserved. Mercy was available only because justice was met in the cross. God does not extend mercy without payment because he's righteous and just. Mercy is extended only because of the reality of the cross. When it was extended in the Old Testament, it was because God could look forward to the work of the cross. When is it? Is, 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 <laughs> when it is extended in this time period, it is because he is looking back to the work and the continued work of the cross. And then grace goes beyond that. And, and here's our position before God. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says that our standing is in grace. Is in grace. God doesn't give us justice. You don't want justice. And he goes beyond mercy. Our standing, our daily walk, our daily life, the crux and the core of our relationship with God is based on grace, which Ephesians says he lavishes upon us. He's not stingy with grace, nor is he limited in grace. He lavishes it upon us. And the ultimate expression and manifestation of that is the incarnation and the cross of Christ. And now we live by grace. And there is an unending reservoir of compassion in God. He's a merciful high priest, an unending reservoir of compassion when we are experiencing difficulty and failure. He restores us in times of failure. God is into restoration. When we are broken, he does not leave us in our brokenness. He restores. Having become man, he is merciful toward man. But being still God, he is faithful in all things pertaining to God in his ministry of high priest. He's faithful in all things pertaining to God. This is the wonder of the cross. That in Christ, God is able to be merciful, but the cross is still faithful to who God is. And this is only makes sense in the person of Jesus. As Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says in the first part, Hebrews 1, 3 says, And Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his nature. He's a radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his nature. So in the work of Christ and the cross of Christ, he's faithful to God's nature as holy, 
righteous, saving, and loving. The cross is faithful, true to, consistent with God's nature as holy, righteous, saving, and loving. All of these attributes collide at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it is the only place where they can collide. Because God is holy and he's got a holy standard. And God is righteous and just so it cannot be violated without retribution. But he is saving and loving. So he wants to save and he's willing to pay the price. And all of these things, which are components of the nature of God, his holiness, his righteousness, the fact that he is saving and loving, they collide and make sense only in the cross where the price is paid and so justice is met, where Jesus ended his perfect life so the righteous standard was attained to and the love is made manifest and the saving of you and I is made possible. The nature of God collides at the cross of Jesus Christ and only in the cross can God be totally merciful and still just. Look how wise God is. Look how good the cross is. Why would we not preach this? Why would we not tell people about this wonderful thing? It says that he did it, the last part of verse 17, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation, if you have a King James, God bless you and the other three of you, it means atonement. I'm really not teasing you for that. <laughs> okay, we're cool? Good. I mean, I'd be happy if you all had the King James. It's fine. I lo- even the, never mind. Okay, <laughs> the word propitiation, I am such a spaz right now. The word propitiation in the King James is reconciliation. In the NIV is atonement. The New Living Translation says a sacrifice that would take away. Propitiation, reconciliation, atonement, a sacrifice it would take away. Hilaskomai is the verb in Greek. It simply means this, to eliminate impediments that alienate God. To eliminate impediments that alienate God. Notice in the structure of the sentence that the direct, direct object is the sins of the people. The direct object is that which takes the action of the verb for all five of us in this room that understand. <laughs> I had to ask someone else on staff this morning. The direct object takes the action of the verb. The verb is that propitiation, the taking away. What was taken away is the sins of the people. The sins of the people needed to be dealt with. Remember, the job of the priest was to continually make sacrifices that satisfied the righteous standards of God. Jesus, as the ultimate high priest, gave himself once and for all to satisfy the righteous standard of God as well as God's justice. Now follow me on this. Propitiation. The idea is a sacrifice that satisfies, or in the verbal form, the act of sacrificing that causes satisfaction. Jesus, in giving himself, satisfied the righteous standard of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God, and the wrath of God. 
All of that was satisfied through the cross of Jesus Christ. And because the wrath of God, the anger of God, the justice of God, the righteous, because that's all dealt with at the cross, because that's been satisfied, that means that God is now satisfied with you who are in Christ. He is satisfied with you who are in Christ. If you are a Christian, if you've repented of your sins, they have been dealt with, removed as far as the east is from the west. And because of the cross and the person of Christ, he's satisfied with you. Do you know what it's like to be satisfied with somebody in a relationship? God is totally satisfied with you. There's nothing you have to do. You don't have to perform religious tricks. You don't have to put on some sort of act. You don't have to run around and do a whole lot of ministry. He's totally satisfied with you because you're in Christ. Christ lived a perfect life because we couldn't. And he died a death on the cross so that we wouldn't. And he rose from the dead so that we might. And now God is satisfied with you and your standing is in grace. So when God looks at you, he adores you. He loves you. In fact, Zephaniah says he rejoices and sings and dances over you. He is totally satisfied with you, his bride, the church. We are on a honeymoon and it's good. And if we lay hold of that truth, it is so freeing that God is satisfied with you. To tell us die, it is done, it is finished in the person of Christ. Just receive it. Walk in it, live in it. And when you do that, Christian life gets so simple. When you just realize, he's satisfied with me. I'm accepted. He loves me. That's cool. I'm gonna do stuff with him. See? See? I'm gonna do stuff with him. It's like a marriage. Wow. This hot chick loves me? My wife. She's over there. <laughs> Ladies, you can look. Guys, don't even look. I'll kill you. <laughs> she loves me with all my faults and my flaws and my idiosyncrasies and my quirks. She's okay with me. I'm going to hang out with her. God is okay with us only in the cross of Jesus Christ. And he's totally satisfied with us in the cross. So that then changes the way that we approach God. Now it's just as simple. I'm going to hang out with him. And when we hang out with him, our whole world changes. Everything changes. Amen. Hmm. Okay, I got a little sidetracked there. Where should we go from here? Oh, here, here's a good one. <laughs> Here's a good point in my notes. Oh, Lord. He's satisfied with us. Oh, yeah, I wanted to say this. This is a good, good warning for us. He's satisfied with us. He forgives us of everything. Remember, he's uh, faithful to the things pertaining to God. So 1 John 1, 9 comes into play. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. There's no sin the Christian could commit that he won't forgive you for. If we're looking for that forgiveness, he'll always forgive us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. But we need to realize this. 
Forgiveness doesn't fix everything. Sin still has temporal consequences. Temporal consequences are designed, designated, ordained by God for humanity. They warn us. And when we experience them, they train us. There's always forgiveness, but forgiveness doesn't fix everything. That then is one thing that keeps us from the mindset of, well, I'll just do it and God's going to forgive me. An understanding of grace keeps us from that. An understanding of the holiness of God keeps us from that. But a right understanding of the fact that forgiveness doesn't fix everything will also keep us from that. David committed that horrible sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband. And he was forgiven by God. The Bible's very clear. He was forgiven, but that didn't fix everything. His child still died. And if you've been reading through the one-year Bible, just last month you were reading that his family became horribly dysfunctional. There was in his family rape and incest and rebellion and murder and heartbreak and horror. There was forgiveness. He was okay with God, but it didn't fix everything in the here and now in the temporal realm. That's why we want to avoid sin. It's destructive. I must say that sometimes God does remove consequences. There's a young lady here in the church. She's very involved in ministry. She ministers here every week, all week long, and and on the weekends. And before she came to Christ, she was sexually uh, promiscuous and got an STD, a really bad one. And she came to Christ. And she was forgiven for her sexual promiscuity and all that went with it. She was forgiven, but she had this STD. She was bold to come before the body and ask for healing. And we laid hands on her and prayed, and she was healed of that thing. Amen. So God does on occasion remove temporal consequences. But generally speaking, forgiveness doesn't necessarily fix everything. So avoid sin. Life is better. So the end result is that because of both the finish and continuing work of the cross, Jesus is always willing to restore us in times of failure. Because God is satisfied with us, the way to mercy and grace is open, and Jesus understands our weaknesses, he meets us in our brokenness, and he walks us through those self-inflicted difficulties. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14 is a favorite of ours. It says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows what we are made of. He is mindful that we are but dust. Now let's finish the last verse, verse 18 of chapter 2. It says, For he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So he knows our plight because he himself was tempted. There was no possibility of him sinning because he's God. And yet the temptation was real. That's one of those things that's just difficult to understand. 
But that's, that's what the Bible teaches. So we'll just roll with it. But he was tempted in all things that humanity is tempted in. So he understands our plight, not only through the fact that he is omniscient, but in experience as well. Was not our Lord in his humanity so exhausted that he slept in the boat during the storm? Didn't he at times have to withdraw? Was he on the cross not in real agony? Was he not really truly thirsty when he said, I thirst? He was truly tempted in the wilderness experience and all the ways that we are tempted. He was truly tempted in Gethsemane. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from before me. Nevertheless, thy will be done. He was truly tempted, but he is without sin, so he's able to be the perfect sacrifice that paid the price on the cross to break the power of sin, and having broke the power of sin and dealt with the penalty of sin, he's able to come to the aid of those who are struggling with sin. Anybody here struggle with sin? Okay. He is able to come to the aid of those who are struggling with sin. The victor, listen, the victor is able to help those in the fight. The victor is able to lead to victory those in the midst of the battle. That is us. Because we are not yet saved from the presence of sin. We still deal with flesh and blood and with spiritual warfare and with temptation. The Greek word here, boetheo, that's used for aid, it means this, it's beautiful. It means to run to the cry of those in danger and bring them help. The word of God declares that God himself runs to the cry of those who are in danger and gives them help. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overcome you except for that which is common to man, but God is faithful who will not let you, he will not let you be tempted beyond that which you're able to bear, but with the temptation will provide the way out. He is the way out. His power, the cross, and the working of the Holy Spirit is the way out. And he has put parameters on temptation. He has removed from the church the excuse, the devil made me do it. Can't say that anymore. We can't say that. Satan doesn't have that power over you anymore. You ought to rejoice over that. He's removed from him that power. And now, not only is that power broken of the enemy, but when the enemy does tempt us, when we cry out to God, and there's a crux of it, when we cry out to him, he runs to us and meets us in the moment of temptation, in the moment of need. You need to understand that it's not a sin to be tempted. Is that a relief? Because a lot of you are tempted. I'm tempted all the time. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's what you do with it. It's not a sin to be tempted. Christ was tempted. But to yield to that temptation then is where sin becomes the issue. And the Lord's help comes at the moment of temptation and need. If we cry out to him, we have an unending, limitless resource of help. There's nothing we can't overcome through Christ. There is no struggle he can't give us the victory in. No matter what the addiction is, 
no matter how deep the root of bitterness, no matter how heartfelt the disappointment, there is nothing that can't be overcome through Christ. Amen. Amen. That is an absolute truth. We must contend for that truth and cling to that truth because humanistic perspective is creeping into the church. And the church is starting to buy into ideas of, well, this is just too great for a human to handle and I could just never get over this and, you know, uh, it's a disease and all these other things. It's sin and he broke the power of it and he's able to deliver us from temptation, the person of Jesus Christ himself. We've just got to call out to him. Now, the essence of temptation is to act independently of God's revealed will. That's it. God says, do thus and so. Temptation is to do the opposite. When we yield our will to God's, then we gain the victory. And that should be something that the Christian does daily at the outset of the day. Lord, I yield myself to you today. I yield my will to you. Thy will be done in my life. And if there's a general yielding, then there will be general victory in the moments of battle. But if there is a general tone and tenor in your life of rebellion and waywardness of God, then you will fail in the heat of battle. There's got to be a general surrendering of our lives. And then we experience the fruit of that in the minutia of the battle. But when we fail, he always restores us. And he's able to come to our help because he himself was tempted to act independently of God's will. But he surrendered in the garden, said, nevertheless, thy will to be done. Thy will be done. And he suffered as we suffer. He went through the same moral, physical, and psychological anguish that humanity experiences. And Jesus had total victory over the temptation which was to avoid the cross. When he was tempted, the temptation was, listen, avoid the cross. Satan said to him in Matthew chapter 4, see this world and all its kingdoms? They've been handed over to me and I could give them to whomever I wish. Worship me and I will give them to you. The temptation was, skip the humiliation, the sacrifice, the yielding of your will to God. Skip the cross and look for another way. In the book of Hebrews, these believers are being tempted to skip their identification with the cross of Christ. Because now if they, if they profess Jesus Christ and his cross, some of them will lose their life. If they refuse to be identified with it, they will be able to save their lives in the physical here and now. Satan is always going to tempt us to not identify ourselves with Christ. I'm not talking about verbal proclamations so much as I am our daily living. Whether or not we are really identifying with Christ and his cross is met out in the way that we live daily. We're finished. I'd just like to read Psalm 138. Turn there, please. Psalm 138 to finish. Psalm 138, a psalm of David. Psalm 138 starts in verse 1 saying, 
I will give thanks to thee with all my heart. I will sing praises to thee before the gods. I will bow down toward thy holy temple and give thanks to thy name for thy loving kindness and thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word according to all thy name. King James says, above all thy name. On the day I called, thou didst answer me. Thou didst make me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to thee, O Lord, when they have heard the words of thy mouth, and they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou wilt stretch forth thy hand against the wrath of my enemies, and thy right hand will save me. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Thy loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the works of thy hands. Lord, thank you for this wonderful cry of the psalmist, that when he called upon you, you heard, and you answered, and you came, and you rescued. And thank you that that is so true for us today because of the cross of Jesus Christ. It is so good to know, Lord, that when we are being tempted, you yourself stand ready and eager to run to our cry and to bring us aid. Help us to call upon you more. Strengthen us in the battle. Strengthen us in the moments of difficulty. Lord, help us with the things that we're struggling with. We believe that you're able to deliver us from every one of them because you are an effective high priest faithful in the things pertaining to God. By the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of the cross, we shall be free. Help us to walk in freedom, Lord. And Lord, should we fail, thank you that there is unending mercy. Thank you that that mercy is according to your very nature and that you're faithful to work it in our lives. Thank you for being so good to us, Lord. We believe, but help our unbelief. Increase faith in this place to walk in newness, in grace, and in victory, and to receive forgiveness where needed, Lord. Holy Spirit, come. Minister these things to our hearts.